Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Juanced, The show that challenges popular conceptions, thinks critically, examines independently, and most of all, seeks nuance. Each episode features a different guest. We'll dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, tech, culture, and more connected to Israel and the Jewish world. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land, and welcome to Juance, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world, and beyond. I'm Betty Shoulder. I'm Dan Pfefferman, and we are thrilled to bring you another great episode of Juanced. Before we get going, I'd like to give a shout out to our audience watching us today on Facebook Live. Thanks for tuning in. And for those of you listening later in the week in Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all the other podcast platforms, know that there's a live video version of the show, which you can check out weekly. It's available on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Podcast. Check it out when we record or watch all our episodes on our YouTube channel, Juance Podcast, as well as our website. You guessed it, juance.com. Also, make sure you're following us on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Juanced or at Juanced Podcast for all the updates, uh, new episodes, announcements, all that kind of fun stuff. And make sure to subscribe to Juanced on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And please, we'd love it if you leave us a five-star review. We've heard it makes some kind of difference. Supposedly, it makes a difference. Supposedly. So, Dan, our listeners might notice that there's something different about our show today. <laughs> What's different on this night? <laughs> what is different? We're uh, we're in separate places. Facebook.com slash Juan's podcast. Oop, hold on a second. We got a little, <laughs> What's uh, different on this night? <laughs> what is different? We're uh, we're in separate places. We good? I think we're good. Are you good? Yeah. All right, I think that was on the. Uh, over there, okay. What 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 are you noticing that's a little bit different about uh, well, today? For those who are listening who can't pick it up already, we're going to have uh, maybe some possibly technical issues um, for a very simple fact, and that uh, anyone who hasn't been living in a cave for the past week, Israel is in a bit of a uh, conflict week. Um, there have been is over that the official term. I, I don't even know. It's not a war. Well, what do you call it? Stephen, Stephen, what would you? You're sitting in California right now, and you've got wildfires by your house. But uh, what what would you call what's happening? It's not a, quite a war, but what's happening now in Israel? How would you characterize? Well, in it? California, we would call it a, a balagan. A balagan. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, the for those of you living under a rock and also not paying attention to Juanced, we have had an incredibly uh, tense and violent week here in Israel, um, and earlier. This week, we dedicated a special live episode to it. Um, so for those of you who want to check it out, you're welcome to do that. It's only on Facebook Live. And, um, of course, you can follow my Facebook for, for constant uh, updates. Um, I was just on the news earlier talking for anyone who really isn't sick of my voice already. But uh, over 3,000 Hamas rockets have fallen on all of southern Israel and many, many parts of central Israel. And so for that reason um benny who uh usually does all the the sound work and all that kind of stuff really really well 
um, is staying home um, because it's still a little bit dangerous to drive if you don't need to and leave your families if you don't need to. And so usually if it's uh, Benny and I sitting here together in Rehovot in the studio and then our guest oftentimes abroad, uh, we are now all three of us in different locations. I just thought we wanted to make it look more professional. That's why we're... If my my bedroom here, where uh, I feel like it's amateur hour. Exactly. What can we do? What can you need yeah. a nice office like Stephen? That's what you need. That's what I. That's what I need with Yuri Gagarin and the and the and the picture in the background. Uh, Stephen, what's what's going on? You got wildfires. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I'm. Uh, the good news is my house is right next to an eleven thousand acre state park in the Santa Monica Mountains, in Southern California. The bad news is that uh, California has decided to move its fire season to 11 and a half months of the year. <laughs> so uh, we were actually, uh, long story short, this is not the first time and unfortunately not the last time when all of a sudden uh, we spend several days dropping everything, wondering when it's time to pack, when it's time to leave, which way is the wind shifting and so on. This time, it came within about you know 800 meters of wow. uh, of our house, um, but um, it was strange. It was an arson led uh, set fire, so oh, wow. these were not classic fire conditions, which is to say, really strong winds, high temperatures, and so on. So yeah, we we we, wow. we caught a break. That was how we spent our shavuos. Do you do you have like a go bag? Yeah, we we have a number of, you know, things like that. You're never really quite prepared and there's always the question of when is it time to go? Mm. Your your inclination is to stay and and fight for the house. Um and we're prepared to do that. We live in a a community that thankfully is very highly organized uh on in all these things. There are procedures there are drills, community-wide drills, and so on. And well, what can you do? I mean, um, you know, it, it's funny. We're, we're kind of like not talking about the situation here for a second because it's, a, you know, r- rockets and massive wildfires are two equally very tense situations that can destroy your entire house and neighborhood. Um, and life. What can you do as a, as a citizen, uh, as a homeowner, if, if there's a wildfire? Is there anything you can do? Well, you can prepare in advance. Yeah, you 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 clean brush, you know, around the perimeter of your house. You know, you check, you know, grates and you know places that are open to the elements to make sure that you have enough screening to keep live embers uh, from outside. Some of my neighbors are really prepared to uh, to basically fight it out. Um, you know, they have. Uh, professional grade fire hoses, really? uh, pumping systems, uh, you know, ways to, to hook up to uh, the, the water mains and, and so on. <clears throat> the problem is that a wildfire can turn into a fire storm. Mm. And in a fire storm, um, things don't burn. They just basically explode and disintegrate Whoa. and all of the oxygen is sucked into the fire and that's pretty difficult to fight against that's so that's, the, that's what they had <laughs> in january of last year in australia right yeah similar wow similar 
Yeah. Well, that sounds a little bit, to be honest with you, I feel badly about saying this because obviously there are people in Israel that are suffering right now for the situation. Um, but for the vast majority of us, I think, uh, and Dan, you can, I don't know if you feel the same with me as I do. Uh, I, you know, I've been living with this, with these rocket threats for so many years now living in Southern Israel that it's become more of like, instead of fearing fear, instead of feeling fear and anxiety, I just feel like anger and, and, and frustration. Um, because I have a safe room I go into, I sit in there and, you know, it's in God's hands. What, let, you know, what can I do? do its job. Yeah. But, but with your situation, that would scare the ever living crap out of me. That's like, you know, literally the air, you wouldn't have oxygen to breathe because it's just too, that's, that's yeah. a frightening situation. Yeah, um, we actually, you know, actually, this is a very interesting point. Um, and it, it really brings out, it's, it depends on what you know and what you're used to. So I, I traveled to Israel during the, the second intifada, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, a, a few times. It was in the, you know, in the, in the, the second half of, of that period. Oh, so two, it wasn't three. really at the height. Yeah. But <clears throat> I was kind of notable for being, you know, an American willing to, to travel to Israel. And Israelis were entirely baffled by this. <laughs> why, why have the Americans stopped coming? And I would explain to it, well, you know, you read about you know, buses and restaurants and so on and so forth, and they're, and they're, they're frightened. They're, they're scared to come. And Israelis were just baffled by this. Say, wait a minute, you, you people live in places like Chicago and New York, and Los Angeles, and you're worried about coming to Israel? Well, when you live in New York and Chicago and Los Angeles, there, you, you accommodate your, you know, it, it becomes part of your frame of reference. Mm. You learn how to deal with it. You have a better sense of what's safe and what's not safe and so on. So, you know, I, uh, that's how I would explain that effect. Um, um, and uh, actually, this is, this is not a small thing. Uh, when it comes to uh, relations and understanding between uh, American Jews and Israeli Jews. Absolutely. Uh, and, and it definitely has to do with how, how people might uh, make decisions when, when facing uncertain, uncertain situations that might come to the future. And, and you know, quite a, and you know, quite a bit about that kind of a, that, that kind of a process, don't you? Yeah. You know, it, it occurred to me and a, a couple of my colleagues, you know, good 25 or more years ago that, kind of the sort of problems that that we all were facing were, you know, somewhat less of the sort that they teach in economics or operations research textbooks, you know, where you, you know, how to deal with risk bearing well, there are probabilities and expected returns and all that sort of stuff. But what happens if you don't know the probabilities? What happens if you are faced with uncertainty so deep that the methods that you use to think about risk bearing and how to operate under uncertainty just just no longer really hold. I mean, do you pretend? Do you make assumptions? Or, you know, as as I and as I say, a number of my colleagues did, do you start thinking about, well, how do we how do we operate under these sorts of environments? So so how, Stephen, do, how does somebody Stephen, from the Rand Corporation yeah. advise, you know? So, Stephen, uh, we're, we're going to use that as a segue to introduce you. Okay. And before we introduce our guest, Professor Stephen Popper from uh, Rand Corporation, quick announcement um, from Benny. 
So everybody check it out. As you know, uh, Joe Wentz is a listener-supported podcast. We rely on the generous support of listeners such as yourselves to make sure that we keep the excellent round uh, lineup of guests going and to make sure that we deliver professionally uh, produced content, not like this Zoom conversation, but like when I'm in the studio with Dan. Thank you to the uh, Hamas for that, uh, to, to keep that going. So uh, what what we would uh, kindly ask of you to do is to consider being a, a one-time supporter of the show. Uh, by or, reaching or out a to regular us on our, supporter of the show. Or a regular supporter of the show <laughs> by reaching out to us either on our PayPal account, which you can, uh, which you can make a one-time contribution, or a regular con- contributor on our Patreon. Uh, details are available on our, fa- on our website, www.juance.com, and you can join uh, many of the listeners that we already have in over how many countries now, Dan? We are up to listeners now in 122 countries. 122 countries. 120, we finally got a listener in Norway. Europe is like almost filled out. We had all of Scandinavia <laughs> except Norway. It's like we need somebody from Norway. <laughs> so I can imagine there's someone sitting looking over a fjord and uh, and enjoying an episode of Juanced. <laughs> good times. Good times. So, yeah, if you want to uh, support the show and keep the magic going, please do that, and we would be very much appreciative. And for any... Um, any contributor who uh, wants to do an ongoing contribution or a major contribution to the show, we would be happy. You know, you're welcome to record questions, send them in, write us a letter, and we would be glad to include you on one of the intros to the episodes of an upcoming episode of Juanced. Terrific. So we are talking about uncertainty and decision-making and all of these kind of things that uh, Amer- people in California, people in Israel are dealing with right now. And uh, we're going to use that to segue to our guest, one of the most interesting people I know, certainly. And we have with us Stephen Popper, senior economist at the RAND Corporation, a professor at the Pardee RAND Grad School, associate director of the Science and Technology Policy Institute from 96 to 2001. Stephen provided analytical support to the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy and other executive branch governments. Is a very long bio. I'm not going to read it all. I will say at the very end of the long bio and at the very end of uh, consulting to the White House and Defense Department and all sorts of work on decision-making and how to think about the future and uh, all sorts of long-term policy analysis, Stephen is also a colleague of mine at the Jewish People Policy Institute where he contributes his massive brain to some of our forward-thinking work and things dealing with the economics of the Jewish world, something we'll also hopefully uh, talk about. Uh, received his PhD in economics from the University of California, Berkeley, and is originally from Minnesota, as we just discovered. I was, was going to say, you saved the best for last. Like like me, like Juwan's co-host, Benny Shoulder, Stephen Popper is a member of the Frozen Chosen. An, ex- <laughs> an exiled member, a fellow exiled member. And, and for that, Stephen, I have this... Uh, <laughs> Oh, all right. There oh, we go. My, I've got my Herman Killebrew, Killebrew uh, card. I, I don't have it here. I brought for, it up. For, for those okay. of you listening, they're, they're talking about Minnesota memorabilia, which I also have some, but I'm not going to go get it in the middle of the show. Stephen, Dan, Dan shared with me that the only baseball game he has ever been to in the history of his life was a Milwaukee Brewers Twins game in Milwaukee. Oh, really? It's true. It's, it's yeah, mostly because I don't like baseball. So. <laughs> Well, good because I don't want to talk about the twins this season. No, no, yeah, they're awful. They're, no they just suck beyond. Well, no. to get to get back into it, I, I think it's actually quite interesting what we were talking about before. To 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 go and sort of reiterate, just the the how do you make a decision? 
when you don't have any data in front of you as to how to navigate some sort of a situation, which could have very, I, I would say, either regular mundane effects or very profound and and controversial, in fact, uh, or, or, or even catastrophic impacts. So, so we're just uh, jumping into the deep end. Uh, it's it, you know Stephen mentioned it, so I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna All good. just just say it like it's 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 something that's always been of interest to me in in terms of just you know we we go about our daily lives and and we don't necessarily see you know every action is is a reaction and the choices that we make have impact on and what happens into the future and and but people don't think like that they're not thinking you know what I mean unless they're ter- you know extraordinarily strategic they're not they're not they're not planning out each and every move in that sort of a way. So when you, when you choose to move to Israel or California, you weren't thinking about the risks involved and in, in having sort of a risk reward conversation. You were thinking of maybe the nice weather or being amongst your people or whatever it might be. Um, the, the I'm not question, sure that's question. entirely true, Benny. How so? Um, you know, we, we, you know, you, you, you go to school, you go to college, they teach you, um, you know, about, thinking, they teach you about algebra, they teach you about working chemistry problems, they teach you about, you know, sociology and so on. And we come away with thinking that, you know, the only kind of reasoning that people use is deductive reasoning. Well, here are the facts, here are the probabilities for the things that may be uncertain. I'm going to kind of do, you know, the machinery of deductive logic, and here is the answer. And the world, you know, is not constructed so that, you know, that, that, that works reliably well. So, in fact, human beings have an additional reasoning faculty, which is not so much deductive, but inductive, which is to say, we, we are constantly posing all kinds of what-if questions to ourselves. You know, what if it rains today? Oh, what if I forgot to, you know, to do this? What if I go out with this girl <clears throat> on Saturday night versus the one that I just met the other the other day? What if I, you know, major in chemistry or major in public relations or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, so there is in the human mind this constant play, and it's not, you know, necessarily at the conscious level. But just sort of fleeting thoughts. Well, what if this? What if that? Something catches my eye. Oh, what if I left the uh, the water boiling? You know, all of all of that sort of stuff. And you know, it it took me a long time to figure this out because psychologists have noticed that people tend to infer patterns. You know, they will look at a set of random lottery numbers, and you know, after the winning numbers are. Um, announce, they will look and say, oh, yeah, I kind of see the relationship between them when they're, and it struck me, how could that still be a thing, you know, in human cognition, if that was a bad thing? And so, you know, I, I, I sort of realized that our intelligence is composed of a number of different logics, which we all do all the time, whom to marry, what, what school to go to, what to major in, you know, etc., the problem becomes, you know, when the human faculty is just overwhelmed by the number of what ifs, and when we're trying to operate as a group. How do you share that kind of what ifing and that sort of intuition when you're, you know, you're part of a 
a planning group within a government agency or, you know, or within an, uh, an, org- uh, an enterprise or any other sort of organization. And that's, that's sort of what we need to be able, that faculty is what we need to be able to reproduce somehow on a, on a systematic basis. Is that, is that even harder today when, with the instant nature of social media where every clown with a keyboard, myself included, um, tries to intervene in the decision-making process, tries to instantly judge the decision-making process? It, it seems like what you're saying is, is hard enough as it is, and now it's under total scrutiny of the public eye from the beginning it's like the the decision makers who have a hard enough job can't even have time to properly make their decisions anymore right yeah no you put your finger on it dan um and there are a number of things going on here Uh, one is that the decision cycle is now so rapid another is that you know um the 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 penetration of technology in even into areas where you know, previously we thought of them as low tech, means that the pace of technological change is, is um, you know, everything is marching to that, to that drum. And it used to be that, you know, we would kind of achieve sort of a plateau um, and everybody would sort of figure out what the new kind of rules of thumb were for operating within their part of the universe. Uh, and then some new technological change would come and it would bring us to another plateau and we'd have to relearn these rules of them. Now it's just sort of a continuous dynamic of change. There it's, are it's no never settling. It's, it's never settling for us to catch up to it, right? Right. So you never really know, you know, the, you know what we were talking about before, you know, an Israeli living in Israel and the rules of thumb for sort of dealing with life there. Uh, an American living in New York and dealing with the rules of thumb there. <clears throat> and there are a couple of other things. If you start talking about, you know, democratic governance uh, that, that become an issue stemming from the same cause. One is, is the one that you point to, which is that, you know, yeah, you have a lot of people spewing a lot of stuff out into the, into the, into the ether um, but you also have um, serious engaged people who have access to information in a way that they had never had before. And that, um, that means that the, the previous quasi-monopoly that governments had over information, you know, if you, if you really had all the facts and if you understood the situation the way we do, you would see why we've decided mm-hmm. on this particular policy. Now you have many people and groups that have access to pretty much the same information. And so you have alternative centers of authoritative expertise developing. These people really know what they're talking about. And because of the, um, you know, of the, of the same media, it is easy for these centers, uh, alternative centers of authoritative expertise to, um, to coalesce into communities of interest and communities of, of, of uh, you know, of stakeholders. Uh, who demand a seat at the table? Um, so you have 
you know, this kind of diffusion of authority. And then the, the last thing I will mention is you also then have within governments kind of a diffusion of responsibility. Um, you know, the sort of problems that we dealt with in the past, you could assign to the, you know, the Department of Transportation, the Ministry of Health, uh, you know, the, uh, the you know, Ministry of Finance and so on, Ministry of Education. Now we're dealing with problems that, you know, are a little bit of all of them. You know, you need to consider the health and the transportation and uh, housing and so on. They're, they're all sort of connected. Um, and that means it's not clear who is responsible. And in a place like the United States, and I think especially in government, in Israel, you have a problem of how do you how do you have some kind of an interagency process? Mm -hmm. You know, how do you how do you work this on a on a on a whole of government uh, basis? So you have yeah. this diffusion of responsibility as well. Right. And it seems like, it, it, it seems it seems what I'm thinking about that the entire time that, that you're reading that I mean you're you're articulating things that I'm thinking about constantly. And one of the things that stands out is that in a world where we do have these very rapid decision cycles. We have these, this penetration of technology. Dan, you and I attended a, a lecture once with uh, Tom Friedman, and he talked about Moore's Law and the, in the exponential uh, A common uh, frozen chosen to the two of you. Yeah. Uh, uh, he, also, he was in my high school class. Was Tom <laughs> Friedman. Yeah. So he, he was mentioning just that, you know, human beings have reached this point with the, with the technology, uh, you know, and, and, and Moore's Law, the exponential development of technology, whereby we literally have more power at our fingertips today, uh, the average person does, than, than let's say gods or people, you know, what, what ancient people would have considered to be gods. Uh, and how do we wield that? How do we, how do we use that power responsibly? And, and, and it was generally a pessimistic uh, view of, 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 of the world, and I uh, unfortunately agree with him but but here too it seems like it may not uh you know and, and i love israel and i love america and i love democracy but it you know it is it, it may not be that democracy is suited for this type of a reality if it's based on you know uh, uh, uh separate branches of government that that are you know sort of uh, interfacing with each other and responsibilities are shared. And, and I'm wondering, you know, are we destined to go to some sort of a reality where in order to be competitive, either economically or to be secure militarily, do we have to re, you know, would we ever have to look at a country like China as some sort of a, a role model for how to uh, construct and uh, organize society? Well, let me, you know, kind of, push back and ask you a question on something like that and then and then turn a question to Stephen here. I was thinking, actually, while the two of you were talking, and I think during your previous question, I was thinking of something else that, that Tom Friedman said in that lecture that we went to that stuck with me to, to this day. And he said, because of technology and social media, et cetera, democracies have become ungovernable. And and that's something that that's really stuck with me, and I see it you know, you can see it here in our election cycle. You see it in a lot of different uh, um, you know, Western democracies. And, you know, maybe the, the question to you, Benny, is not do we need to switch to some kind of, a, you know, efficient authoritarian model like China, um, but do we need to think about government, and even if it's democratic, but do we need to think about new models of government that fit our new reality or Stephen, 
right. is any change we're going to make not catch up to the next technology by the time that one comes out? I mean, how how should we even think about this? Yeah, well, so it, it's really interesting, guys, because this is something that I really started thinking about. I, you know, I've had like four or five different careers at RAND, and I was at a point uh, getting on for about nine years ago when I was trying to think what my next RAND career was going to be. And this is basically what I decided, that, you know, based on what I had seen in Israel and Europe, you know, Korea and other places, Mexico, that there was a systemic crisis of democratic institutions of governance. And, you know, I went through, you know, some of the stuff that I've been talking about. Why, why is it? What's the problem? What I, what I concluded is that, you know, the concept of democratic governance, I think, is still valid in many ways. And, you know, in a, it, one of my former careers was, you know, spending a lot of time thinking about, you know, Soviet-type economies and central planning and all that sort of stuff. And I would still say that on balance, I would be more inclined to go with a, you know, a system based on democratic governmental institutions. But those institutions were conceived of by, you know, designers who had absolutely no conception of the sort of conditions, the sort of world that they would be asked to operate within. I mean, these are, you know, these are people who, you know, basically didn't know what a a bank was, you know, to say nothing of a multinational bank, to say nothing of, you know, the possibility of, you know, there could be one owner of all the coffee houses in (laughs) Philadelphia and in New York (laughs) and, you know, on the West Coast of the North American continent, which no one had seen yet. So, you know, that for me, my job, I view myself as a, as, a, as a tool maker, and the tools that I'm trying to build are those that are going to enhance the ability of democratic institutions to observe the phenomena that currently they have a difficult time perceiving, and at the same time, think about ways in which, you know, we can erect the processes and have the conversations that we need to have. I mean, a lot of what I do, I I do work in really varied areas and you sort of scratch your head and say, you know, really doesn't make much sense. But what is common among them is trying to engineer a series of modes of operation so that you can have conversations among different groups of stakeholders. So you can have people coming from different, you know, portfolios with, within a government. So you can have contact with trends and be able to think in a systematic way about what the future might bring and how that affects the choices that we face today and how we can ensure that our short-term actions are consistent with our long-term goals. I'm kind of a, a pessimist by nature, but about this, I'm very optimistic that it is possible to develop the tools that will allow democratic uh, governance to meet the challenges that 
that it is facing. Can you, can you give and, some examples? Many, yep, go ahead, please. Uh, can you give us some examples of uh, th- things that you're allowed to talk about at least? Um, what, yeah, let, what kind, me, of, me, what kind me, of challenges are we talking about here? All right, let me, let, me, let me give a concrete example. This is a project I did a couple of years ago called The Road to Zero. In the United States, there is this um, you know, non-governmental coalition called the Road to Zero Coalition, which currently probably has well over a thousand member organization. It's chaired by the National Safety Council, which also is an NGO. It's not a government entity. Um, and you've got every breed of dog and cat. Um, in, in, in this organization, all the major, major you know, manufacturer groups. Uh, so let me describe. The, so the idea is how to bring the United States to zero preventable road fatalities by the year 2050. What's the road to zero? How do we get there? Um, you know, currently, actually, road deaths in the United States had been going down. They're now starting to trend back up again. You know, uh, they're a little bit under 40,000 a year, but they're, 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 they're getting back there. So how do you bring that number to zero? Now, so this organization includes, as I say, manufacturer organization and lobbying groups. It includes insurance groups. It includes, you know, mothers against drunk driving, you know, motorcycle um, you know, uh, advocate groups. I mean, you know, uh, you know, national associations of district attorneys, of county district attorneys. You know, everything that you can imagine. And they all come from different perspectives, have different interests, you know, and and have different solutions to the problem. You know, what what's the strategy for reducing zero highway deaths? Well, the strategy is we need a lot of federal investment for new technology and new technology will solve the problem. No, 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 no. The problem is the road infrastructure itself. It's not designed to, um, you know, to fail gracefully. We need massive spending state, local, federal on new roads and so No, 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 no. The answer is education. What we need to do is to do a better job of educating the public. No, no. What we need are really firmer regulations, changing, you, you sort of get the picture. So they all come in, you know, they're all, you know, the representatives of these groups are all trained lobbyists. They've all got their talking points. They all have the agenda that they're trying to move forward. And the only thing, the only thing that connects them is that they can agree on one common goal, reduce traffic deaths to zero in the year 2050. Now, how do you deal with yeah, the situation? You see, I mean, you see this in a lot of places. Uh, you see this climate change, gun deaths. Uh, gun, let's take gun deaths in America, especially mass shootings. Every time there's a mass shooting, you have you know the, these mass debates on, on CNN with all the talking heads. And, and you know it's one of these where you say, those are all good ideas. Why can't we just do 10 of those ideas? You know, why, why do we have to pick one? Is there something in human nature that you know you know I, I focus a lot of my efforts on uh, you know as you know on, on Jewish peoplehood type issues and of course I have a military background and, I fo- and especially now I'm on the news all the time uh, talking about Gaza and this and every, it seems like everyone is always looking for what's the solution what's the answer and it's like eh, usually it's a combination of like 20 different things that you're doing at the same time 
and maybe some of them will work and maybe some will work more and maybe some of them will work less. I mean, where's those voices saying, guys, you've all got a piece of the puzzle. We need to put it together. Yeah. Well, you've, you've, you put your, your finger on it, Dan, and this is why, you know, I think it's worthwhile, partly to spend some time focusing on this problem because it looks like so many other problems that we have. And if we figure out, you know, a way to doing that, yeah, there are a whole bunch of things in human nature, you know, that militate against that. Um, you know, uh, one is fear of the unknown. You know, if, if I give up kind of my talking point and, and my interest, I don't really know what's going to happen. And I, I'm not entirely certain, you know, that I that I that I trust you. Uh, one is, you know, I don't want to do everything because I don't want to pay higher taxes. Um, one comes about because of the way that we have these conversations and the way we bring analysis into these conversations. So, you know, so you know, the uh, the let's say that there's some government office saying, well, we need to really kind of figure this out. And so they will, you know, hire analysts, um, you know, people who are expert in this area. And, and, and what's the mode of analysis that we have been trained in? Well, first, let's get an idea of what the system is, what all the forces are, what affects what, and so on and so forth. And then we're going to kind of build a model of that system so that we understand it. And then we're going to feed in data to that model. And, um, and then out will come, not necessarily an answer to the problem, but it's going to tell us how this system is going to evolve. We're going to, you know, sort of be predictive. Now, the problem, well, there are many problems with that. One of them being that you can't do it. Yeah, I mean, you can't really be reliably predictive. How accurate is it going to be? Yeah. Um, but another problem is that if you think about it, if you peel back the onion, what you're doing is forcing people to debate assumptions up front. Because each one of these groups that I mentioned come in with a different set of assumptions about what the future is going to be like, what are the important you know, factors, um, what are, the, you know, how how causality works, you know, how, what, pulling what lever causes what to happen. And if you force them to kind of come to some sort of early consensus on assumptions about, about the future, they're going to rebel because they're not stupid people. They understand that the assumptions that you, you choose at the beginning are going to determine what your analysis winds up saying at the end. So, you know, you, you've set up a confrontation, and by the way, an unresolvable confrontation, because you're arguing about things that by definition, nobody really knows. So one of the ways that you, you know, there are a number of jujitsu moves here. And one of them is instead of an analytical process trying to figure out which are the correct assumptions about the currently unknowable future. You instead have a process where you are beginning with a set of proposed solutions. They say this, the other people say that, this person says the other. What kinds of futures would be conducive to those different strategic suggestions? 
what, what are the things that would cause them to fail? Um, if we figure out what the failure modes are, do some seem to be clearly more robust than others? By that, I mean, can, can give us a satisfactory set of outcomes across a wide range of future situations. And if that is vulnerable, can maybe we can hybridize uh, across these solutions? So in that kind of a process, everybody is along for the ride because they've all got different assumptions. And they say, well, what about my assumptions? And what about you know, the other people's assumptions? And so you say, good question. Let's see. Let's, let's, let's get an idea of how these different you know, courses of action would behave under different assumptions. Maybe we can you know, cross-pollinate two of them or three of them. Maybe we can come up with plans that are inherently adaptive. The plan itself will say, you know, we're going to go out five years, then we're going to look at these different signals. And if the world is de developing one way, we're going to move in this direction. If the world seems to be developing another way, we're going to move in that direction. Do and most, that allows uh, us to do the sort of thing you're talking about, Dan. Do, do most responsible and advanced societies have people that are doing this, that are gaming out the future? You know, or, it's really, or is it more in, just intuition, in, intuitive and, so, and interest-based? So, so what, what people, people have, you know, it's, it's interesting. I started talking about this sort of stuff in the early 90s and, 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 and people said, wow, this is really interesting, but I'm not at all certain what you're talking about. <laughs> you know, but after the dot-com bubble, after 9-11, after Fukushima, after you know, the uh, Brexit, you know, all of a sudden, everybody understands completely you know, what I'm talking about. So, so, so people are, are looking for something and they've got this idea we need to think about the future. What are we going to do? You know what? Let's let's draw some future scenarios. Um, and so they go through a whole scenario process, which I doubt is of interest to your um, it, to your listeners. But you know what what happens is you you come up with you know depending on the method you use three or four you know wildly different scenarios quote unquote and you sort of give yourself a pat on the back. Uh, well, we've, we've really thought about the future. We've raised our consciousness and, and so on. The problem is, okay, what happens now the day after the scenario exercise? You know, you've, you've done your retreat, you've done your big think and so on and so forth. Now you go into the office, you know, your, of your agency, your mission, you know, agency, uh, uh, and you look at your inbox, and what do you do operationally? What what difference you know have right. have you made? So we're sort of at that stage now where people are talking about scenarios. Yeah, we need a you know a set of of scenarios of the future. What what they're not doing is asking the question: scenarios for what? For what purpose? How will we use them? What 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 do these scenarios mean for our decision making? Um, so, you know, it, you're starting to, to see that. You're more than starting to see it. I mean, there are all kinds of RFPs, that is, say, requests for proposals put out, you know, for some team to put together a set of future scenarios and so on. And 
um, you know, when I fill out a, a, a proposal in response to that RFP, I will say um, the important thing is to think about, you know, your operational decisions, whether it's scenarios or whatever you use, how are you going to inform the short-term choices that you need to make? So let me get this straight. There are people that issue RFPs and they're doing this because they want somebody to tell them what the future is going to bring? No, they're a little more sophisticated than that. They're, okay. they're, 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 they are aware they need to think about the future and they're not really certain how to do it. And this seems to be the way to do it. You asked about, you know, different places and different societies. You know, one of the problems that you have is if you're in a place like the United States, it's, it's really difficult to introduce this kind of planning and, and, uh, you know, and decision-making because we, we subscribe to the fiction that our policies are sort of fire and forget, you know, every 30 or 40 years, the, the, the tax system, the immigration system, social security is way out of whack. And we manage to get together the political will to do a major reform, but we all pretend as if that, that is now fixed. We've fixed the problem. We can now move on to the next problem. And we're disinclined to view any policy that we put in place at any one time for what it really is, which is a policy experiment. There are places like sure. the Netherlands where they have more of a view of this. They don't, they don't, fish their, um, they don't fix their equivalent of uh, social security or old age pension system every 30 or 40 years, they introduce a reform, they see how it goes, they make a change two, three years down the road. So there's a, a place where it's easier to introduce this sort of concept about, you know, adaptive policy in the face of uncertainty. And, and, and I would just add to that, the way that I've been looking at things from here, both in Israel and in the United States, is that we're living in such a polarized reality now where it's so difficult for any political, uh, whether, you know, politician, candidate, leader, you know, you name it, to actually enact, you know, forget about the process of how they develop a policy, but just to enact and pass legislation for problems of the utmost importance. It, it just seems like... Again, I mean, I understand that the media plays a role in this. I understand that we're living in a hyper-aware world. I, I know that there were problems in the past and, and that, you know, crises are nothing new. But it it seems as though we have some big ones and uh, nobody seems to be able to, to pull the trigger on anything. No. Uh, you know, it's just this ultimate stagnation. I mean, here we're going into, I'm pretty sure it'll be our, you know, we'll go to fifth elections here in Israel. In the U.S. <laughs> it seems it. that... No. <laughs> That's happening. Don't don't even. And and and, and I think and, I think we're going to see a wackier scenario. By the way, I don't even know. <laughs> Look, Israel's a different case altogether because I think that you know I've had this conversation with you, Dan, and I've had this conversation with my wife and others. It's like, how many cycles like this do you go through before many of the people that are less, let's call it. Um, less value the democratic system say you know what let's just let's just have a dictator it seems to be more effective than this whole democracy thing which is just for the past two years three years you name it hasn't been working um, and i don't know the u.s isn't the u.s doesn't seem to be in that place because it's a much 
older, more established democracy with with a constitution and and so on and so forth. But it has its own challenges. Um, I just don't. I mean, does it just take courage for somebody to to step out and break this mold? Is it going to take a catastrophe? I mean, what what has to give in order for in order for things to get done? Well, you you have set out a rich set of questions here. I know I do. I, I have that. I have that tendency. I'm not very. I'm all over the place. You know, I mean, I mean, um, I mean, you've put your finger on something important, which is, you know, there may be dysfunctional aspects to this democracy and democratic process these days. But even worse, there's kind of a growth industry of people who, for their own interests, are eager to emphasize and overemphasize those dysfunctions, you know, because yes. they've got a different a, a agenda. agenda. Uh, polarization of politics is a, a tremendous problem because it, it wipes out that one vital ingredient that I pointed to uh, in my in my example of the road to zero. You know, they disagreed about everything except for one thing. There was one thing that they had in common, and they were willing to recognize that they needed to sit down with others in order to achieve, you know, what they wanted to achieve. That, that polar, polarization is, you know, it's hard to compare, but I would say it from, you know, it, it's probably worse in the United States than in Israel, but in Israel, you have a different situation, which is it's difficult to have an interagency policy process because the ministries are owned by different parties. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, we, we have yeah. poli active politicians who are heading the ministries. And so they see what they're even if they're from the same party, they see yeah. what they're doing as part of, you know, propping up their own political career. So they have an interest in getting as much turf as they can and making themselves look as good as they can in uh, you know, hijacking budgets. Um, you saw it with the housing crisis a few years ago. But anyway, we don't even talk about the housing crisis anymore <laughs> after <laughs> after COVID and Hamas. Um, but, you know, there's a turf war over who gets to fix the housing problem, which ministry gets to own this department that allocates land and that department that, you know, pushes through the building uh, permits. And, and, you know, in the end, I don't think anything ever got done with that, even though there was an... Yeah, well, I mean, you, you have... You know, sitting members of parliament heading ministries in, in Britain and, you know, in France and so on. But in Israel, because everything is a coalition, right? it, it means that it's really difficult to have, you know, kind of a, a, a candid a conversation inside the government about policy. But, you know, I, I think there's something else that comes into here. And, and this is just, you know, fundamental anxiety and fear. Um, I, I don't. I don't know if it takes political courage on the part of an individual. If so, boy, that that seems like a really chancy sort of thing, you know, to have uh, you know uh, uh, somebody of Churchillian proportions save us from ourselves. Doesn't seem very democratic either. Do, no. do, do you purport to the idea that uh, democracy is the worst, best option we have for governance? Well, where, where do you personally stand on that as far as the different models of government out there in the world? Um, they, they all have their pitfalls. Mm. And it's a question of choosing your, your, your pitfall. And it also needs to suit the, 
the culture and the and the, the social norms of the society. So you know, it's I don't think there's one side size fits all. But but you know, I want to go back to this. So so what does a courageous leader? do and what might we do in lieu of a courageous what one thing that a, a a successful courageous quote unquote leader does is to lay out a vision um you know kind of give people a sense of what change might bring uh, rather of, of than what the future you know, should asking, look like right a big pardon of what the future should look like what what we we should envision yeah. What, what would, what would, what would good look like? And we are taking these steps, you know, in, in order to achieve that, you know, uh, the, not to derail this or to bring up another big s- subject. Uh-huh. Derail, go ahead. Derail away. Um, you know, I, I see this as a problem in Israel, especially because, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons, it's not, really is a strategic culture. Um, you know, it's very action oriented. You noticed. <laughs> what gave <yeah>. away? <laughs> and, and, and this becomes a problem, you know, I mean, you know, so the, the missiles are flying as we speak. I hope not, but probably. probably uh, so. People are, are beating up, you know, each other in the streets of Ramla and Lod, you know, Haifa, Akko, etc. Um, and so you, you sort of ask yourself, well, why is it that these sorts of issues have, in a certain sense, sort of dropped off the scope of, you know, Israeli political discourse? And particularly, why is it that Israeli citizens either consciously or unconsciously are willing, you know, to settle for the status quo. Um, and I, and I think part of the reason is because, you know, at least it goes back to the very first thing we were talking about, at least it's familiar. You, you know how to operate. You hope that things will remain stable, even though in your heart of hearts, you know that they won't remain stable, but you know, whatever happens won't be of such a, a tremendous magnitude that it'll be disastrous, you can get used to it and so on. And you know, a part of the, the thing that I see is, is lacking is there has really never been a conversation beyond security about what are Israel's strategic goals. What does good look like for Israel? What does Israel at peace look like? Uh, not just in terms of security, but in terms of its economy, its society, its place and role yeah. in the Middle East. Well, you um, had you had someone who tried to talk in these terms, and he kept getting rejected by a majority of the societies. His name was Shimon Peres. Shimon Peres, yeah. So here's the problem. Um, I I think I think that this. So here's, here's kind of a paradox. I think the government really needs to have some sense of vision of strategic goals. Uh, you know, security planning occurs, but not within a, a truly strategic frame of reference. You know, moves are made in the security realm that lack policy guidance. Uh, oh, yeah. Because, oh, yeah. 
Exactly. I mean, you know, the you know, we can talk about the police over the course of the last, you know, month uh, and so on. And and this leads to myopia, stovepipe, tactical decisions, lacking the benefit of a whole of government approach. And worse is that the Israeli public has not been given a vision of, you know, of, of say what the peace camp really is asking of them. But I, on the other hand, I don't think government is necessarily the place for this conversation. And so again, so Israel is a very interesting place because you have this tradition in Israel of potential third rail um, topics, really sensitive, you know, kind of issues related to the future to be treated first um, informally and with, you know, government deniability. You know, things like the Israel 2028 process, the Daroma um, mm. initiative that began, you know, as one of these conversations. And I know for a fact there are groups that are eager, you know, and I've actually worked with them on process to have precisely this sort of conversation in sort of ever increasing circles um, about exactly, you know, what, what are the core elements of a vision for Israel at peace. And what are, we, we talked previously about, you know, strategies. What are alternative strategies? What are kind of big strategic concepts that could guide actions uh, towards this future? So I'm what, sorry. What are, I'm, no, I'm no, what, what are your thoughts on this? I'm curious. Um, so at any rate, so. Um, well, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, what, how should we be thinking about the future? Because you're you're 100 percent right that you know everything is political, everything is tactical, everything here are short term decisions. When visions are laid out, they are this is a negative vision. We don't want to end up there, right? So by, by, by the by the way, before you do that, I, I just have to say for the record, Dan, you and I have talked about this ad nauseum. The points of which you of which you just brought up, Stephen, about Israeli society are often some of the things that deep most deeply disappoint me about life here, which is that I believe that the people in Israel deserve to know what they have in store for them. You know what what a vision could be like for this country because there is so much potential here. Uh, and, and, and people here are, you know, by and large, pretty good people. Um, it, it just seems like it's totally missing from any sort of a conversation to the point where I often wonder, do we even have a public discourse about our politics in this country anymore? Does it even happen or is it just, you know, we say in Hebrew, sismaot, uh, how slogans, would you say that? Slogans. 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 You know, don't like this guy because he's a leftist. Or don't go with this guy because he's a fascist. Without anybody knowing what those terms even mean anymore. They, and, and, and things are thrown out there that are so ridiculous. Like when, when the prime minister called Naftali Bennett a leftist or, or a Victor Lieberman a leftist. And it's like, I, I don't think that that's the definition of the, left, of, of the left the last time I looked at it. But, you know, how does an intelligent and the question I ask myself, and maybe it's even, you know, it's a rhetorical question. It's just how can people, how can intelligent people not see what's going on or at the very least not desire to have more of a conversation about what people are doing about our very serious problems that we have in this country? Uh, and, you know, I thought that COVID might change that in many ways where, where we would have more of a public conversation about issues. And it, it didn't. Uh, quite the opposite. It seemed to just exacerbate a breakdown. 
Um, well, I think what you're getting into, Benny, is is something a lot bigger, and that's this kind of. Um, a lot of people have retreated to this place of tribalism. Where I mean, you, you keep you keep bringing this up, and rightfully so. You always bring up that we never talk about actual policies about issues. Parties don't ever they they don't seem to campaign anymore, at least here in Israel. On here's what I'm going to do for this issue, and here's what I'm going to do for that issue. Rather, it's like you said, it's all on the level of slogans, and and it's just become very tribal. I think. The polling data shows the the people who are able to switch between parties are very limited, and it's usually switching be- within their camps. You know, it's it's I'll switch between Meretz, Avodah, and Lapid, or I'll switch between Likud, Bennett, and Lieberman, or or whatever it is, or Saar in this case. So, I mean, I, it it might even be a bigger challenge of how do you bring society, and I don't, and here I don't know if it's it's limited to our country here in Israel. I think it's a global issue right now that, you know, how do we get away from this tribal mentality where we can discuss issues and not just identities, you know? Well, so, you know, we analysts um, speak pretty antiseptically and clinically about uncertainty and risk-bearing and so on and so forth. What we don't talk about a lot is uncertainty, you know, breeds fear, real visceral fear. And when you get a bunch of primates together in a group, um, that fear is amplified and retransmitted and can lead to panic. The monkey brain can take a lot of, I'm sorry. (laughs) The monkey brain. Yeah. Betty likes to talk about our monkey brains. (laughs) I mean, you know, primate ethology uh, explains an awful lot of of what happens, you know, in, in, in us sophisticated human beings and our societies and our politics. And panic can take a, a number of different forms. Uh, one is what you guys are talking about, sort of, you know, re-emphasizing tribal identities. You know, well, we're all in this together. It's us against the world. Panic can result in people, you know, kind of running around screaming with their with their hair on fire. It can also take quieter forms, like a panicked leadership that really doesn't know what the hell to do. You know, can't admit that. And so they will say, this, this is what we're going to do. This is the course that we're going to follow. And we'll kind of nail their colors to the mask. Um, I don't know. They're, they're... I, 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 I don't want to come off as the guy with all the answers and all the solutions, but I'm, I'm discovering small little pieces of the puzzle. Um, there was a project that I led for RAND in Israel, working with the prime minister's office, that was, you know, ostensibly about long-term socioeconomic policy for the state of Israel. But what it was really about was how to introduce, you know, kind of what I have called, you know, strategic thinking, or at least long-term thinking, um, uh, into the um, organs of government in Israel, and it was a you know big project and you know all kinds of stuff going on. But the, I'm the you know, I'm very gov- proud of the fact. Sorry, I, beg your sorry. I said the Israeli government hired Rand. Um, 
to, yep. to, to look into this. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a whole story behind that, Dan. Um, but yes, they did. And, um, and, you know, uh, what we were able to come up with was a mechanism that, by the way, exists to the best of my knowledge. In still, it was you know, our before we'd even finished the project, the, the government uh, in October of 2012 uh, accepted our recommendations and they actually implemented There's There is a strategy office now uh, in the office of the prime minister. Um, and among other things, you know, it it gives sort of strategic briefings to incoming MKs and ministers and Mankalim and, and, and so on. There is, you know, an, an interagency process in the form of um, monthly meetings, again, at least there used to be, um, for the, the deputy Mankali, the deputy uh, directors general in charge of planning across all of the ministries and a number of, of things like that. I, I have been less successful. I hinted that I was working with a group that was interested in having the type of informal process, you know, talking about strategic alternatives for Israel. It was a group that was, you know, they were not famous names because famous names need to, you know, take public positions and so on. But they were people who were very well connected uh, broadly with famous names in Israel. It was a group that um, truly spanned the political spectrum as it existed at the time. The political spectrum has expanded a little bit to the right in, in, in recent uh, developments. Um, and it was going to be, you know, it was sort of under the aegis of a, an NGO, uh, an institute in Israel that was, you know, recognized as being right of, of, of center. So in other words, people who could speak to the government and, and so on and so forth. Unfortunately, it was, I don't know, you know, it it's difficult to raise money for that sort of thing. It's a lot easier to raise money for the wing of a hospital or somebody that somebody can put their name on. Um, uh, it was my failure that I, I could not make a sufficiently strong case for the importance of something like this. But the idea was going to start with a, a small conversation and then have a more open conversation with observers and sort of expand out from that. I think your failure. So there are things you can do. I think your failure is more to recognize that Israelis don't like long-term planning. <laughs> no, I, I, I knew that from the beginning. I mean, outside of maybe Somalia, I, there are very few places that are that are less <laughs> inclined to long-term. It was really weird. Uh, for a while, I was doing projects in Israel and a project in Vietnam, and just completely night and day. You know, in Vietnam, they want to think strategically, they want a lot of analysis and so on and so forth. In Israel, you know, if somebody says, well, Dr. Popper, this, this seems a bit theoretical to me, uh, perhaps a bit academic, that is about the worst insult <laughs> that the Israeli vocabulary, you know, they may give it in a very low-key fashion, but you have just been give, given the absolute 
you know, worst epithets that <laughs> can apply to anything. Yeah, either be why. called a leftist or an academic. I, mean, those... I, don't, I don't know why I'm thinking about this right now, but I, I noticed this like stark, this, this very starkly when I first went to China. I went to China on a work trip uh, several years ago. And I landed in... Uh, in Hong Kong, and we took we took the train into uh, Guangzhou, and we were just driving around the city. And I'm looking at these massive public works projects. Okay, we're talking about huge bridges, skyscrapers, you know, 14 lane highways, and, and of course they have the, the needs for those things. They have so many people. But I'm looking at that, and I'm like, there's no possible way in hell that any of this could ever be built in the country that I in, in Israel, in the country that I live in. Like, there's no way. Like we can't even, it took, I, I, I work in Tel Aviv, Stephen, and there's a, a pedestrian footbridge that goes across the Ayalon Highway called the uh, Geshe Yehudit, the Judith Bridge. There's never been a footbridge that goes across the Ayalon Highway. If you, if you, you know, all the pedestrians have to go through all of the, the stoplights. It takes maybe 10 minutes to cross this major bridge that all the traffic, you know, they built a bridge that people can go on. It took them like five years to build this thing. It's a two-lane walking bridge for people to walk yeah. on and i'm looking at a 14 lane highway in like shanghai and, and whatnot but uh well you, you don't have to go to shanghai you know uh, next time you're down in elad uh take a, a look you know a few you know a thousand two thousand meters away oh at yeah the port of aqaba mm-hmm. you know which you know was nothing uh 25 years ago or whatever it is, and and now you know it's it's this bustling area. Yeah. While or, for, or, or you know, twenty five or thirty years, Israel has been trying to decide. Well, what what is a lot? Is it a recreation area? Is it a port? Uh, should it become a um, a uh, you know an incubator for you know uh, solving regional problems and so on? And and, right. and, and, you know, the decision goes on. Or I see this also when you go to Athens, Greece, and you realize that the, that the Athenians have a subway and a pretty good one, too. Yeah. Which is, which is saying a lot both about the Athenians and about us, that we don't have one and that they have a good one. Uh, because yeah. Greece is anything but, but a highly functional state. Yeah, you um, know, I mean, there's a different way of looking at it, which is Israel is sort of a victim of its own success. I mean, you know, if you think so. about it. Um, I'm sorry? How so? Well, you know, so it it was born in an emergency. Um, Emergency governmental institutions were were put in place with the view that, you know, when the emergency is over, you know, we will, you know, really sit down and think about what sort of institutions we want. Uh, And unfortunately, the emergency was never over. Um, it was a nation of, you know, of chalutzim and, and, and small businessmen, you know, and kibbutzim and, and so on, um, you know, fundamentally an agrarian economy with, with no industry. And now it has become, you know, one of the central nodes in the global knowledge economy. It's a regional power and so on and so forth. But the the, the the institutions of governance are are basically still the same. They have not been um, they have not been scaled up uh, both in terms of of size, but more in terms of procedure to 
meet the needs of what is, you know, one of the most complex multi-ethnic societies, you know, on the face of the globe. Um, and it all happened so quickly. Yeah. And then, you know, you, you keep saying, okay, we need like a, a break to be able to look forward. And we never seem to get that break. Exactly. Uh, although uh, there are others, I'll play devil's advocate with myself here, is that, you know, you can say um, there are many politicians who might not want that break because it's always easier putting out fires than having to, you know, think long term and, and go into 20 year projects. Um, um, part of the political structure here is that, you know, governments last so little time that nobody wants to go into something that's going to take 20 years because they're not going to get credit for it. And so you, you have what's called, you know, um, uh, juncture politics where you can build a juncture in, in a span of one, two, three years, but you can't build, for example, a, a metro, like you said, which, you know, they only started doing in Tel Aviv just uh, just recently or the, the train between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. Um, Benny and I were kind of discussing something um, the, your alien question. <laughs> your oh, you want me to go there? I kind of do. I want to. I want to see where this goes. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, I am. Uh, okay, we'll pull the we'll, we'll pull the wool off of uh, off off of the skin. I'll put on my tinfoil hat. I'm. I am a. I'm a very big agnostic. Uh, when it comes to belief in 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 extraterrestrial life, uh, meaning. Um, I wouldn't even say big agnostic. I'm like 80% there. I'm 80% there. And the reason being is that uh, if life can exist here, why wouldn't it be able to exist somewhere else? And there seems to be a lot of different things that have happened in recent and uh, less recent times that point to lots of anomalies in the atmosphere uh, and and in metaphysics and so on and so forth that we cannot explain and there's been recent government acknowledgement of these sorts of of these sorts of things. Nobody's saying that they're extraterrestrial in origin. They're just anomalies. They they could be uh, they they could be some sort of an advanced technology that that we had don't uh, we I'm putting on my American hat that uh, we're not aware of of what it is or what its origin is. Uh, and then, you know, they're looking at that as sort of like a national security, sort of a, a strategic threat. Um, there's not really a question here other than to just, well, just to I, have say, a, like, I have a question from this. Is, is that, uh, I, I guess the question is this, the question is, I would assume that there's in this issue and, and this is just kind of like a flagship issue, but there are probably issues out there that people that are the policy making level uh and others are not willing to go into and even consider even though they may be they may be very real issues because of a stigma that exists whereas if you look at them and take away a stigma and you purely look at them from an academic perspective and you try to judge them on the merits of of their evidence or lack thereof you may find that there is something that needs to be discussed, that there, there is something that should be at least considered, because if it's true, it could have vast implications for, in this case, the nature of reality itself, if not, you know, security and, and, and well-being of society, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and, and what do you do uh, when you encounter that aspect of human psychology where, you know, to even bring up something which could be important to bring up is 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 ridiculed or or stopped right out the gate. Well, let me unpack something here real quick. And for our listeners to, to be aware, 
I, I'm not aware, when Benny and I were kind of throwing this question around with each other, I'm not aware of anything in your biography, Stephen, that, that makes you any kind of expert on this specifically. We just thought it'd be fun to discuss this with you because you, you'd go with us. You'd go with the flow here on this. But, but first, I mean, I guess it's a multi-part question that, 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 uh, that Benny came up with we're thinking about. is uh, First of all, in, in your capacity, I mean, RAND is one of the premier think tanks. It's, it's connected to government. You've been connected to government. Have you thought about this? Is anyone serious talking about this from a policy, not from a scientific level, for any kind of policy level? And then the next part, after we talk about that, and, and you know, what do you know? What do you think about this this concept? These things we're seeing, um, you know, the Navy or the Defense Department talked about, et cetera. And then I, I guess the next part is, let's assume there's something, just for the sake of this conversation. How should we be thinking? How should we be preparing? What could it do to our societies? I mean, maybe let's unpack it into two parts like that. Well, um, first off, um, this is a a much more comfortable conversation than the previous ones because i I can now speak with the you know the full confidence that only comes from complete ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and and the second thing I, sh- I suppose I should say is something I should have said at first, which I would hope would be obvious, which is that yeah, everything that you're an I'm alien. Saying, I beg your pardon? No, I that you're not really alien. disclosed that yet. <laughs> um, you know, anything I say, I'm, I'm obviously everything I say during the course of this chat is me as an individual and not as a representative Rand or any of its uh, clients or associates or so on. Um, it's a fun topic and it's a very serious topic in a way that, that I will describe. I mean, um, w- one would have to look at, you know, extraterrestrials, alien life, uh, you know, possible visits to Earth and so on and so forth. You know, I, 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 I am agnostic in the sense that I lack the evidence to be able to dismiss um, these possibilities. Um, you know, the mathematics uh are such the famous Fermi paradox that, you know, it is highly improbable that there isn't something that we would recognize as life or even intelligent life somewhere, you know, in the, in the known universe, you know, and, and the, the potential impact were we to be contacted or were we to become aware of the present of extraterrestrial life would be fa- profound. Um, it would be profound in terms of, um, you know, technology and so on and so forth. But it would be even more profound in have us having to rethink again many of the rules of thumb and many of the core rules of thumb and beliefs that, you know, sort of underlie our world. Even if, you know, many people will accept the theoretical probability of, you know, a possibility of something like this. Um, it, um, you know, dealing with the reality, you know, it's, you know, an unfortunate topic. We all eventually have to deal with the death of apparent, we're all aware of that, when you're actually confronted with it, it's a completely different thing entirely. Um, 
But I'm going to disappoint you both by taking the question entirely seriously, because the, it, oh. it, it's, really, it's really a profound question. So I, you know, I will say, well, you know, we're going to think about different strategies, and we're going to compare them to a number of you know, plausible futures, and, um, and blah, 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 and so on and so forth. Well, what is a plausible future? So let me, let me give you an example that will give you a little more confidence, Benny. So it's, uh, let's say it's, you know, the year 1978, 79, and we're planning for, you know, national health care system, you know, pro, you know health uh, providers. Um, and we're, we're trying to, you know, think deeply about it. And I'm at the end of the table and I say, well, what if in the next couple of years, all of a sudden we were confronted with a brand new disease that re replicated itself, an organism that re replicated itself um, using a mechanism currently unknown to science, and it was highly infectious, and oh, you know, by the way, nearly 100% fatal, and somehow it could find its way into the most marginalized parts of our society so that, you know, we would not recognize it as a health emergency, we would ignore it, and so on and so forth. And, you know, it would hit us right in the, um, the weak chink in our, you know, our social safety net, our, our, our you know, our, our health armor and so on and so forth. Are you referring to AIDS? Nope. Froze on us? And, yes. And people, you know, why don't we, you know, thanks a lot, Dr. Popper. Um, you know, um, you know, please don't derail our process. So, so what is possible and what is probable when we're dealing with the unknown, you know, expert panels and, Delphi panels and so on, getting experts together. Nobody is an expert on the unknown. Right. They they overvalue their ability to um, you know understand you know the processes that they're being asked to prognosticate in. So, um, um, you know, there there you ask you know what about it, Rand? You know there 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 have been. <clears throat> Uh, projects. Uh, one, one of my first graduate student advisees, he did his doctoral thesis on the policy analysis of preparing for a meteor strike, you know, on the, on the earth. Um, is, is this another we words, had on our show? <laughs> I, <laughs> we had one of your policy advisees on our show at the very beginning who, who, who dealt oh, with, really? that, with uh, mass catastrophe planning. Catastrophic oh, okay. risk. Catastrophic risk planning. Yeah. Okay. So that, that, you know, it's like playing Kino in Las Vegas. It was a real light conversation. <laughs> very optimistic and uplifting. David Mannheim, if you, if you remember him. Oh, David. Sure. Yeah. 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 I was on his <laughs> dissertation panel. Yeah. Um, um, so, you know, so it's a real problem. How do you think about things that probably won't happen? But if they did happen, the consequences are 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 really huge. Um, so, 
you know, I, I think you deal, part of the way you deal with that is it's, it's part and parcel of a larger problem, which is how do you do, you know, what, what is called red teaming? Um, for those of your listeners who are not familiar with the term, the idea is this. You have a planning team coming up with a plan, and then you bring in a different group, you know, the red team who are trying to take apart the plan, try to find its flaws and weaknesses. Now, it's very difficult within a, a planning group to have the type of environment where you, know, you, you can do red teaming. Remember what I said about sort of the traditional approach, this sort of um, um, predict then act approach where you're really trying to reduce the number of, uh, of assumptions or agree on the set of assumptions. And then, you know, late in the process, you know, Susie raises her hand and says, well, okay, but what if, you know, this, you know, what if they actually don't have nukes? Um, and they're just for reasons of their own trying to pretend that they do. The reaction, again, go back to primate behavior, you know, the action is that this is a threat to the group. You know, the, the, the presidential daily briefing that is being prepared, it's due on the president's desk at seven o'clock the next morning. This is disruptive to the process. This is threatening to the group you're undermining. And it's a, it's a brave Susie who will raise her hand and say, you know, something, something just occurred to me. So part of what, you know, the story that I have to tell Benny and part of what I try to do in my work is have a process where that is a contribution, where part of the process is to, you know, is to, is to you know, I did an analysis um, actually for the government of Korea once upon a time where, you know, the good, the good Korea or the bad Korea? The, the good Korea. Yeah. <laughs> what do you I, think? I, I work for the side that pays me the most, but uh, right. this time it was the good Korea. Um, and, you know, part of it involved, you know, future growth for China and over the next 10 years. And, you know, in my set of assumptions, I assumed, you know, everything from 0% growth. In other words, something really catastrophic happens. 0% growth over a period of 10 years to, I think it was 12% growth uh, over the next, um, basically doubling the economy twice in a period of, of 10 years. So I will use these very heroic ranges so that it doesn't seem alien to say, well, what if it wasn't 12%? What if it was 14%? Oh, okay. Well, let's check that out. It, 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 you need a process that is welcoming to different categories of knowledge that will enfranchise different areas of expertise and will allow for, you know, for red teaming, you know, uh, asking people say, well, you know, but what if this happened? What if that happened? It's not a panacea. It's not an easy thing to do. But it's not impossible to frame the conversation so that it's less disruptive. It's more in line with the process itself. Th thinking about the kind of scenarios that could have come out of, of, let's say, that kind of scenario. I mean, take a different scenario. I don't know. Someone manages to invent time travel. Okay. 
I don't know. Um, <laughs> right? I'll tell you why I left. Okay. I mean, he, because Stephen invented time travel. He invented it. He got <laughs> bored with it. Uh, he, he is a time traveler. He's from the future. Um, no, there's a show I watched, a sci-fi show, and in one of the episodes, the the crew, it's kind of like a Star Trek homage type show, and they they made it to a planet with people who were basically humans who were not aware that the rest of the universe was had interspace travel and they thought they were alone in the universe. And and they were it was a very clear, I mean they even talked about it, the metaphor, the parable there was was that they were humans and it basically burst their entire religion and worldview that they were alone mm-hmm. in the universe and they had a relationship with God and all of a sudden these spacemen, including aliens, land on their planet and it threatened their entire worldview. And so, you know, it's just kind of fun, but in an intellectual way to try to think of, of what happens when we discover, if we discover something like that here, um, or, or what are these sightings, you know, that Benny talked about that you see that the Pentagon sharing, I mean, could that be, could it be something that, that leaps us forward a thousand years in our progression instantly if something like that were to be discovered but, but, or landed? By the off? way, just, just for the record, some people theorize that what we're actually seeing is ourselves that it is a time travel. It could be something that there's another dimension of the universe and it literally is just we're seeing ourselves that just somehow pops into our dimension. And it isn't extraterrestrial at all. It's it's just, uh, what do they call it? They call it ultra-terrestrial. Extra-dimensional? No, ultra-terrestrial, meaning that it's, 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 it's from this planet. Interesting. It lives here. We're just not aware of it. That's even more mind blowing. <laughs> I'm not even sure which is more mind blowing to think about. I don't know. Um, huh? I'm, I, I, I now feel like I'm uh, wasting my time looking at trivial things like uh, <laughs> mobility and housing in Culver City post pandemic. Well, no, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. Because that's look. This is a fantasy. Is it's not a fantasy. It could be very real. But it's it. You know, you get up in the morning, me, I get up in the morning and, you know, I have to go to work. I have to pay my taxes. I have to pay my bills and I have to live in a house somewhere. And I'm actually moving to another house. And it's like, okay, well, what's going to be? And these are the, the existential things that I think about in, you know, for me. And, 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 and so what you are doing obviously is, I know you were being, uh, you're being, you know, what's the word, uh, you know, poking, poking fun at it a little bit, but it's like it, it acts. It absolutely is 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 important. Uh, and 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 my and my going off uh, into a rabbit hole about extraterrestrials is is much less important. I think to it's a conversation uh, we have about once a week. <laughs> it's well, just. It's also again. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Benny. No, I was just, I was just going to say. I mean, it's it, some somehow maybe this is my monkey brain that goes here. It's like this past year and a half of of COVID and the fifth elections in Israel and all these things. It's like, it pushes you into some pretty strange places in terms of where you're thinking. Um, and, we, and you talked about that before about how, how you kind of go into this place where everything becomes much more, uh, what's the word? Um, you know, there's a lot more anxiety. Everything, you know, seems to be on the cusp of a catastrophe and, and, yeah. and, 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 and so on and so forth. Um, so it's it's convenient to think about that at this time because it's sort of you know it's an escape. Uh, let me um, let me spin that well, into. Well, oh, go ahead, Stephen. Go ahead. No, Dan. Please. I, I was going to spin that into a question here, in that 
you know, from your point of view and from, from thinking about how to approach this on a government or an organizational societal level, are, is there concrete advice um, that you can give us, you know, Benny and I or us, the listeners here, about how can we maybe live a healthier life um, mentally, emotionally, as far as decision-making in a time where information is flowing rapidly. We're not always sure what's real and what's not. Things are changing. Technology we talked about is constantly changing. And who knows, there might actually be aliens or time travelers out there as well. But but is do you have maybe specific tools or advice or, or practices or or, or um, modes of, of thinking that, that we can adopt to make us feel um, maybe smarter or more efficient in this sense, to, to, to be more, I don't know, to be able to think on the next level as far as how, how to make our own life decisions in, in this uncertain era? Um, sure. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> if, if you don't, that's okay. <laughs> um. No, I, 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 you know, I mean, both of these are serious questions. You know, let's go, you know, let's go to the aliens and and sudden transformation. Um, we we don't have to ask what that would be like because we're living it right now. Um, you know, if you look over the last, I don't know, two hundred and fifty, three hundred years of human existence, there are maybe five really big things that have happened. Um, one is that, you know, the world, instead of being powered by muscle and wind, became powered by fossil fuels. Uh, another is, you know, literacy, instead of being, you know, just the part of the few, became the part of the many. Um, another is, you know, uh, women, um, you know, to a larger degree than ever before, um, you know, became uh, became liberated. The fourth may sound a little bit strange, but you know, North America stopped speaking French and began speaking English. And it seems kind of parochial and comparatively trivial, but you think about the impact that has had on on political institutions and political thinking and governmental organization worldwide. And the fifth is, you know, a, a consequence that we're dealing with very much today, which is for the first time in human history, you know, the Chinese peasant has been liberated, has been freed from the land. And China as, as a country is very rapidly for the first time, well, at least for the first time in about 400 years, um, achieving its its full potential, and you know, and so that affects everything. It affects us, you know, when we go to the big box store, you know, to buy consumer goods. It affects us when we, you know, apply uh, for jobs and look for employment in our communities. It affects us as we think about national security and you know, the extent to which the United States may be free from war over the course of the next 20 years. So, you know, th that would not be that, I mean, it would be a different order of things, it, at least, you know, a different category of, you know, of surprise 
But in terms of magnitude of effect, it may not be a different order of magnitude compared to the stuff that we already go through. So, you know, I think, would it be dislocating? Yes. Would there be, you know, perhaps, you know, violence resulting? Would there be, you know, kind of a sundering of some of the ties within society? Yes. But, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's like reading, it's like reading narratives of people who've gone through concentration camps. You know, uh, every once in a while, somebody in one of these concentration camps, you know, kind of looked up at the blue sky and said, you know, today was a pretty good day. Um, you know, nobody that I knew was taken away. Uh, somehow there was a double ration of food. You know, human beings really have an ad- adjustive capacity. You're really, you're, you're, you're so right. And I, and I feel that especially this past year where it's like, look, you know, I, I work in, in, in tourism. I was unemployed for a very long time. And in the beginning, it was a catastrophe for me personally, professionally. And, right. you know, I went from having a very stable job in a very stable economy uh, here with that to having, you know, what next? What am I going to do? And, you know, slowly but surely you developed, I developed a routine and I had, you know, things to, to do to fill my time. And I discovered other things that I wasn't able to do in the past that I was able to do now with that time. And, uh, and all of a sudden life kinds of you know, resets itself. And now when you're coming back into work scenarios, it's like, well, wait a second, you know, maybe I don't want to do this like that, or, or maybe I should think of it in a different way. And, and then all of a sudden the catastrophe isn't a catastrophe anymore. It's actually just a new, a, a, a new way of living. Um, not to say that there aren't real catastrophes. Obviously there are, but we're, we're very adaptive in that way. Yeah. And so the question is, how do we make ourselves purposefully adaptive and how can we do it as, you know, as a society, as opposed to the adjustments that individuals make? So, you know, Dan, you, you asked me the question of, you know, what can people do in their lives? Um, Yeah. I mean, people in their lives, as I said, are, you know, kind of do things surprisingly well along these lines. One of the, one of the things that I have found to be true and ever truer as I work on increasingly complex problems is that it's always best to start from the end. You know, when you're standing in the future and or standing in the present and trying to look out into the future, you really can get very confused pretty quickly just the sheer combinatorics of all of the different futures there might be, just, you know, sort of the course of events in your own life really become very confusing. And so, you know, if instead you put yourself in the future and you look backwards and start thinking about, you know, what are the different ways in which I could come to this place? I I find that to be much more purposeful and and sort of more utilitarian, you know. So so much so that when I begin, you know, doing you know one of these strategy projects with some sponsoring agency, you know, on the first meeting they're interested in hearing about you know are we really interested in, in understanding strategies and thinking about the future and what are our strategic alternatives and so on. And 
I kind of take the punch bowl away and say, no, we're not going to have that conversation to begin with. The first conversation we're going to have is you tell me what good looks like. You, you give me some sense of your vision of the future at which point they become very irritated. You know, this have, is, you know, we, we, have, we know what have, we want. Have many of them perhaps, I mean, ha, have they not thought of that? Have, have most of them not thought of they think that, that far they out? Have. They think that they have, you know, you know, our vision is, you know, X, make y, more money or we, 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 we've got this vision say, well, I don't, I don't work for the private sector. So it's, it's, it's rarely that. Okay. Sure. Um, um, we actually should talk about what Rand is at some point. Sure. Um, but, um, but, but I experienced this on the very first day of the project that I described with the prime minister's office, where my, my clients were, you know, the deputy governor of the Bank of Israel, the head of the National Economic Council, the Director General of the Ministry of Finance, the head of Taksivim uh, of the um, budgets of the budget office, um, and a couple of others, and they were they were confused by the question, which is fair enough. You know, countries don't generally issue vision statements, but even for a mission agency, you know, they will you know say, well, you know, th this this is our vision. And, and what I will do is say, no, 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 that's really not sufficient, because if that's your vision, you have to answer the question, why don't you have it right now? You know, what are the obstacles? What are the trade-offs that would need to be made? Now, go back to the example of the road to zero. Well, our vision is, uh, you know, zero traffic deaths in the United States in the year 2050. All right, well, we, we could have that next week if we wanted it. It would involve a whole series of trade-offs. We're not willing to make. So tell me a bit more about that future where that vision is realized. What makes it sustainable? You know, why is it more than just sort of a transitory moment? And then, you know, the next day somebody starts getting killed on the, the freeways again. What, what trade-offs have been made? What stakeholders, you know, and you can go through a whole exercise like that. And I'm not suggesting it, you know, on the, uh, we do that as individuals. But then the question of strategy becomes relevant because strategy is just a tool. It's just an instrument for achieving certain ends. Um, and you can't really talk about strategy. You can't really talk about, okay, well, I'm going to do this, that, and the other until you have you know, sort of articulated where, you're, where you want to get to. So this idea of you know, starting at the end, you know, looking through the wrong end of the telescope to begin with, I think is really important in clarifying. And then you begin to ask questions about, well, how is, how is that future different from today? And what are the different ways that we might be able to traverse the, you know, the time between them? You know, what conflicts are going, we going to run into and so on? Um, there's a, yeah. Well, anyways, there's, there's a whole thing that I do sort of along those lines, but it, it you know, just in my own life, I, I, I find that to be very clarifying. So, so you're saying start at the end, what does, not just the goal, the, the shallow goal, but what does the future that you envision look like? And then how do you, and then you basically, you work your way backwards. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. You know, it's, 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 it's not, 
easy to do and it's not a panacea, but if you think about it, it has you asking the right questions. The, the wrong question and the question that we keep asking ourselves is, is sort of predictive. What will happen? What's the future going to be like? We don't have the capacity yep. to answer that question. But we ask that question, even though that's not the real question that we want the answer to. The real question we want to answer, the answer to is, given that I don't know what tomorrow will be like, how do I think about my alternatives so that my short-term actions are consistent with my long-term objectives? That's the question that we're, we're really asking. And it's in many ways an easier question. And it's one that, you know, we can actually, you know, but you know, come close to answering. Stephen, we could definitely get close to answering, but again, going back to my monkey brain, that question requires many of us to confront some very uncomfortable realities about, about where we are in life if we want to get to where we want to be. And sometimes, you know, it might be more comfortable for us to just live, live today and not confront those things because maybe to do that means that, uh, I don't know, I'm just going off here. You know, you're not living in the right place. You're not working the right job. You're not married to the right woman. You're not, uh, you know, you're not raising your kids the right way. You know, you, 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 all, all, all of the above that could, that could be within somebody's thing. And, and you know, somebody once said, uh, I think Thoreau said, you know, most men live, live lives of quiet desperation. Uh, and, 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 and I think that's, that's in many reasons why we, you know, we don't ask ourselves that question. And even if we do, we don't have the courage to get from point A to point B. Yeah. It's, it's like what we were saying earlier is that you're, you're too scared of what might happen. So even if you're, present is uncomfortable or not where you want to be you'd rather you know live, it you know it and you'd rather live with that than the possibility of you know jumping for the next st- level and, and falling you know even though once you do things like that you realize it's not as bad as you imagined it could be i think you know mm-hmm. over the last couple of years i've taken a few leaps uh professionally and I didn't know where they would end up. And, you know, one of them didn't work out like I wanted and, and some of them did. And some of them are still, you know, who knows. And even the failure wasn't so bad. And I learned from it. And, and you know, it's kind of one of these things where we get trapped in in in, in this uncertainty. And you say, you know, I'm just going to stay put. I'm not going to rock the boat. I'm just going to stay put. I can't take these risks. And I think... You know, even on a personal level, as far as when you envision what your own personal success looks like, you have to be able to do that and realize that for many of us, and, and maybe thankfully I'm in a place where I have a, a safety net, family, friends, community, etc., uh, and I'm educated enough to be able to to take a decently paying job that I don't like, even you know if I don't get what I want, just to to put to make ends meet. So maybe I'm very privileged in that way. That, that a lot of people aren't, but many of us are also as privileged in that sense. And sometimes you need to, to take those leaps and, um, and not think about the possible failure because, you know, try, try to envision the end that, that, and make the leap and maybe you won't make it. Maybe you'll make it to somewhere else that you didn't know. <laughs> you got, sometimes I'm, you got to roll with the uncertainty. I'm willing to bet Dan, that you are probably a, 
a better leaper and a more courageous leaper now uh, in your current stage of life than maybe, you know, the, the first opportunity that presented itself for, for making such a leap. So, you know, it's, it's really, it really comes down to, you know, kind of behavioral modification and reinforced learning. You have learned that bad, which is to say failure, the leap not working, is not so bad as to be unrecoverable. And in fact, you learned something from it and it informs your decision and probably, you know, reinforces your inclination to take the next leap and have it be even higher. So, you know, I, I don't think this is a light that kind of just automatically gets switched on. I mean, this, this goes back to the philosophers of Greece, you know, uh, I think the term is sophrosyne, yeah, you know, know yourself, self-knowledge. Uh, as being the the, the 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 source of wisdom, development, growth, achievement, and so on, um, and it's 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 a learned skill like any other, and you you, you do baby steps in the beginning, um, and you know the importance is to have the courage for those baby steps, and. And gradually, when you do these small changes in your behavior and your thinking, you look back and you say, wow, I have just a completely different attitude to things than, than I used to have. Um, um, and I, I just, I see this in my own life. But, you know, getting to your point, Benny, um, I, I don't think there are easy or mechanical cures for the disinclination to be self-aware, uh, to, to gain self-knowledge. I mean, if that's, that's the going in proposition and you're sort of fixed in that stance and nothing, no, no loss, no, 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 no buffet of fate moves you off that dime. I, I'm, I'm not sure of how many things that you can do other than maybe be surrounded by people who you know, are gradually themselves becoming more, you know, self-aware yeah. and willing, willing to say to themselves, you know, is it possible that I'm doing something wrong? <laughs> could that, could that possibly be the, <laughs> yeah. Nah. If, if it's all, if it's all right with you, maybe we'll change gears for a second. Uh, talk, think, let's talk about I think we have time for, for, yeah, maybe one, two more shorter topics and then we'll probably have to wrap up. Okay. I'm curious to know a little bit about Rand because we had David on the show uh, yeah. and David, David explained a little bit about Rand. Um, but, but I think we, we spent the majority of that episode talking about COVID-19 because it was the beginning of the pandemic and he was oh, a catastrophic yeah. risk and it was a fascinating conversation. Shout out to David Manhan again. Uh, but, but you know, what is, what is Rand for our listeners, for, for us? Uh, Rand, Rand is a uh, not-for-profit uh, California corporation um, that is uh, not politically aligned, uh, like for real, um, and does um, um, objective fact-based analysis of you know, important policy issues. And its mission is really twofold. It's to, you know, improve 
the quality of uh, public sector decision-making, and secondly, to inform public understanding and awareness of important policy issues. So every RAND uh, report, every RAND project, uh, you know, has a report that is freely available and downloadable from the RAND website, not including obviously those that are precluded from that because they contain classified information or, you know, or have been classified. Um, like the um, ones about aliens. The ones about aliens. You know, I wish I could naturally <laughs> clear this up for you, Ben. But, um, so, it, so it consists of a, uh, its research staff. Well, it, 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 it's, it's about 2,000 people Whoa, wow. in all of its various places. Uh, the mothership is Santa Monica, California. We have several more offices in the United States. Um, Rand Europe is located in Cambridge, England, and has an office also in, um, in Brussels. Um, there's an office in Australia. Uh, once upon a time, there was, a, there was an office in Qatar, uh, also in uh, Abu Dhabi. Those don't exist anymore. Um, and, um, you know, we receive funding um, w w about, I don't know what the current figures are. I would say something on the order of 40% of our funding is comes from um, RAND being the contractor for four federally funded research and development centers, FFRDCs, same legal form that, for example, for many years, uh, University of California operated uh, Los Alamos National Laboratories. You know, the national labs are FFRDCs and so on and so forth. Um, and um, three of these uh, come from the national security sector, the Air Force, the Army, and a collection of um, you know, Pentagon uh, funders. And then the fourth is the Department of Homeland Security. And what this means is that those are line items in the federal budget. Mm. There is a, you know, that's hard money uh, each year. And, you know, what research is performed is determined, you know, in an interplay between RAND and the sponsoring agency. So that's, call that 40% of the funding. And, you know, and not all of that is, is classified work. In fact, only a fraction is classified work. And, you know, that, that is the origin of the money, but it pays for a lot of stuff on, you know, um, um, you know uh, health and education and, uh, you know, resilience, community resilience and environmental work and all that sort of stuff. Then the rest of the funding up to about 95% um, comes on the basis of contracts and grants. So I signed, you know, Rand signed a contract with the prime minister's office. Uh, we signed a, uh, a contract with uh, BATAP, the Ministry of Internal Security in Israel, when we did our project on the police and so on. Um, or there are grants like from the National Science Foundation, National Institute of Health, National Institute of Justice. And then the remaining 5% is you know sort of Rand's own mad money that it raises through you know philanthropic um, efforts. Uh, it, it accept, accepts donations from philanthropies, uh, and it has its own small endowment where it 
you know, basically uses it to explore those areas or those methods that nobody will pay for at this point, but but we think are important. Like aliens. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry? Like aliens. Like aliens. Like aliens. Like aliens. It, sounds Except- like, <laughs> it sounds like it's the ultimate think tank um, is really what it is. Well, it was the original think tank. The original think tank. Yeah. I mean, it, it actually dates back to the, well, it, it, you know, the original RAND was founded in 1946, but a lot of the people that were involved were involved with advising the U.S. Army Air Corps um, on the question of how, you, how do you conduct a strategic bombing campaign against a major um, um, a belligerent in a world war? and bring it to its knees. And so they brought together a group of mathematicians and statisticians and economists and so on. Um, and after the war, when then and soon to be chief of staff of the Air Force, Hap Arnold realized that for the first time in history, the Air Force had become the strategic arm you know, with the atomic bomb. They asked the Douglas Aircraft Corporation in Santa Monica to get together, you know, get the band back together. You know, and these are the people who invented things like, you know, linear programming, dynamic programming, all the, you know, stuff they teach in introductory courses and operations research. So uh, Project RAND began in 1946, but it soon became clear that this group would have, you know, major influence on things like procurement decisions. So it, sure. it really couldn't be part of a private, you know, firm. So with funding from the um, Ford Foundation, uh, it's spun off as a private for-profit California corporation uh, in 1948 on the 14th of May. You said for-profit. Hmm. And did it, Interesting. Then, did it then switch? Interesting date. Interesting date. Interesting the, date. Dan, what? did you pick up on the date? 14th of May? 1948. The 5th of the oh. Oh, oh, oh. Oh. Oh, oh, oh. Interesting. I think it's a Zionist conspiracy. It is. Yeah, I was reluctant to bring it up. I I remember (laughs) uh, the the initial story because I did uh, part of my master's under Martin Van Crayfield and wrote a lot about air power, strategic air power, and the foundations of that. Um, Yeah. uh, By the way. As one one does. As one does. Um, Yeah, right? Yeah. it, it, and it, one note that I should say is that, you know, outside of all the national security stuff, you know, we, we do work on education, health, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's, you know, I think slightly more than half of the it, It's an book. impressive and broad spectrum. I mean, we have tons of think tanks. And this kind of leads me to, to my next little mini question. We have tons of think tanks. In, in the U.S., it's really well developed. Um, I interned back in the day um, at the Washington Institute. And... and you know, you said you said it's nonpartisan, really nonpartisan. All of the think tanks claim they're nonpartisan, but but yeah. most of them very much are. So you're saying, yes, you know, Rand is actually nonpartisan. How does it how does it manage to remain actually actually nonpartisan? And then, well, answer that, and then I'll ask my my second question on this. Um, there are a number of ways. Um, first off, the culture at Rand is you begin with a complete blank sheet of paper. We do not know the answer until we've done the work. And so we're not doing kind of back of the book induction to, mm. to find 
you know, proofs and support for a particular Your position. And, and people know that when they come to us. And they also know that we are going to publish the results of our research. And sometimes this leads to a very unhappy um, client. Um, you know, we are, we are not a management consulting firm. The client is not always right. Sometimes the client needs to be told, you know, you're really asking the wrong question. Or, you know, you thought that, you know, what you were doing was the right thing to do, but it's actually the wrong thing to do. There are a number of notorious cases where, you know, um, offices have been very unhappy with the result of their, of the, the, the RAND work and, you know, tried to squelch it and the RAND answer is read your contract. Um, you don't have the right to do that. And, and the way we stay in business uh, with that model is, you know, we're not confrontational. So I've experienced this, you know, and been threatened and told, you know, if you really? publish this, you know, we'll do X, Y, and Z. Hired thug style? No, just, yeah, well, yeah, kind of. Gee, it'd be really kind of too bad if, uh, you know, sort of the word got out. That, oh, shit. Yeah. So, and my reaction to that is, look, you, d you don't understand the way RAND works. This is going to get published. But let me work with you so you understand what we are, what, what we are saying, why we are saying it, how this actually works out to your benefit, how this fits in, you know, and I've been able to turn very threatening situations around to, you know, a public, you know, a, a, a what do you call it? A, a public press release being issued on the day of publication, you know, how much the sponsors of the work really appreciate the work that Rand has done and so on and so forth. And, and, and you stay in business because that means that your brand is worth something. If the Rand Corporation says yes, then a lot of people are, you know, I was told this when I started working uh, in Israel, you know, uh, you know, Israel is a place where, you know, every, every piece on the chessboard has its color, even if it's, you know, a university or, you know, uh, an, an institute that claims to be objective and so on. And, you know, part of the value of Rand in Israel was, you know, actually being, you know, the, the one external force that wasn't, you know, on this, on this checks point, you know, we're very careful uh, in how our board is selected, you know, Donald Rumsfeld and Condoleezza Rice have been members of our board. Um, so have, you know, former vice president and democratic presidential candidate, Walter Mondale, um, Richard Gephardt, who very few of your sure. um, Dick Gephardt. Dick Gephardt, Speaker of the House and mm -hmm. second in line to the presidency of the United States was right. on Rand. And we have a very, very, very active quality assurance process, internal peer review. That is much more thorough than anything I have ever received from any peer review journal. Wow. Do you find the the makeup, I mean, there's 2,000 people. Do you find the makeup of, of the researchers also spans the ideological and political spectrum? So I'll, t I'll tell you a funny story, Dan. Um, you know, I, 
I first came to RAN, you know, a century ago, you know, back in 1986. And I, as I said, I was doing a lot of work on the economics of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. And there was just a fantastic group of experts and analysts. I mean, just brilliant people that I was joining. It was really like, you know, walking onto the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, you know. Um, and, you know, and, and we worked as a group and we critiqued each other's work and so on. And I must have been part of this group for maybe two years, three years, maybe two years, before I realized that people came from really different political backgrounds. You know, some of them, you know, had been cold warriors since the 1950s. Some of them, you know, came to study the Soviet Union because of an early, you know, youthful attraction to socialist economics and so on and so forth. But this was just not, you know, and I'm not the least perceptive person on the planet, but this, I just really didn't know this about my colleagues until, you know, until I got to know them, you know, for, you know, went out to lunch with them a zillion times and so on. So it's, it's really quite remarkable how we are able to put together not only cross-disciplinary teams, but teams that, that you know, kind of span uh, different realms of experience and political orientation and so on. It's, it's, it's really the magic sauce. Yeah, is that something, um, well, I mean, you, you, you kind of answered the first part of this when I was going to ask why didn't they take an Israeli think tank to do this? And, and you kind of said because the, all the Israeli think tanks seem to be politically oriented one way or another. But is, is this something that can be taught? Is this a methodology that can be, you know, replicated by governments to say to develop their own, you know, publicly funded uh, nonpartisan think tanks? Because, you know, we have we have plenty of think tanks uh, here in Israel. And, and so, you know, uh, you and you and I are associated with one of them. Um, some of them are, are pretty good and, and some of them are less so, but uh, I'm, I'm trying to think how many of them are, are truly nonpartisan or, or yeah, I'm not really sure. Um, well, you know, only a fraction of them are really intended to be. Sure. And that's not a, that's not a bad thing, you know, yeah, you know, being, you know, we, we spoke earlier about alternative centers of authoritative mm-hmm. expertise. That's, that's, that's part of that. Can it be taught? Well, you know, Rand has operated a, its graduate school since 1970. Um, I, it I was so, the yeah. first graduate school in the country to offer a you know, PhD in policy analysis. And the purpose was not for it to be, you know, Rand's training ground, you know, for future staff. In fact, we are restricted from hiring from the Rand graduate school. The really? purpose precisely was to disseminate um, these techniques, concepts, methods, and so on. I mean, to this day, um, one third of the places in the graduate school are held for non-U.S. citizens. Um, and, and we have had Israeli graduates, and they've gone back to have, you know, influential, uh, you know, careers. Um, Any, anyone notable that we might recognize? I'm not going to name names. Uh, okay. Show. Well, I will name one name <laughs> that, that um, Rand's first non-U.S. citizen full-time employee was um, Israel Prize laureate Yechezkel Dror. 
who was a RAND employee from 1968 to uh, uh, 1970. I didn't know that. And he, as much, if not more than anybody, has done his, made it his mission to kind of bring, you know, transplant kind of the RAND perspective and RAND approaches uh, in, in the soil of, of Haaretz. Well, we, we should mention that he founded and headed for a long time the institute with which we are both affiliated. Um, it, it, he did indeed. I, I didn't get a chance to work with him. Uh, I think you did, though, correct? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but I did study his works on grand strategy in my master's degree also. Um, mm-hmm. So he definitely had an influential uh, career. Uh, he's still writing. He's still. Uh, oh yes. He's still writing. He's a how, how old is he? In his mid nineties, I think. Nineties. It, it, it's not a relevant question for Yechezkel. He's immortal. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, he's, he's just well. Still, you know, still writing. I certainly hope so. But uh, yeah, it's it's interesting what you mentioned, and, and I guess we can wrap up um, with this. Is that you know I often get into. Um, this conversation with a lot of people and of course I spent a little bit of time as, as an intelligence analyst and you know people always say well why are all the intelligence analysts uh, why are they all leftists why are they all small and I'm like yeah, I, don't, I don't I don't think you understand that it, it, it's 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 there's a mode of approaching these things if you do it properly with that blank slate method um, rather than with the reality that you want and working your way back it's not that it leads to to, to one political approach or another that's just you know it kind of puts everyone on the same page and a lot of people mistake that as being ideologically you know one way or the other and it often it means you're ideologically what they're not if they don't like the result of your of your thought process or of your research process yeah i mean you you can't you can't have your recommendations or conclusions sort of floating out in space. They need to have solid foundation yeah. and you need to be able to demonstrate what, what that foundation is. So like, you know, I have as, as strong a set of opinions as anyone else and maybe more so than most, but, you know, I first came to Rand uh, in, the, in, the, in the Reagan administration I've worked under both Bush administrations, Clinton, Obama, um, forgetting, forgetting the, the other people. Um, um, and, um, you know, I, I, as I think you know, we've discussed, Dan, I have found myself perhaps more in sympathy with some than in others. Sure. But um, I have always let the work speak for itself. And I have mm-hmm. always, you know, played it straight. Um, without sticking my thumb on the scale. And that's appreciated. You know, you, the, in this business, the first reaction, you know, sort of you, d- you do the final briefing and you're told, oh, no, 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 that's not how we think about that here. You, know, you don't get it. You know, uh, in Israel, you're told you're theoretical, you're, uh, you know, yeah, you're very, being academic, you're being academic and so on and so forth. And then it's a funny thing. It's sort of the, the water dripping on the rock. You go back to that same office a couple of years later, you know, to kind of introduce yourself. And they say, well, you know, let us tell you how we think about things here. And they basically proceed to give you your old briefing, you know, back in their terms. And that's great. That's success. You know, you know, you, you've, you know, at, at Rand, we, you know, we, we're a non-for-profit. So our bottom line is, um, you know, the extent to which 
we have had some sort of a, an effect, some sort of impact uh, on the things that we care about, which is public policy decision-making and public awareness of public policy issues. That's awesome. Um, you doing any, any military reenactment lately? Nah, I do have two brand new knees, so... That's right. Yeah. I remember you got your knees replaced. Wait, you're you're you 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 do war war reenactments? Oh, in my in my youth, back in your when, youth. <laughs> back in it the was day. kind of a, a father and son thing. Was there a favorite war to reenact? Gosh, um, I have done American Civil War. The both uh, sides? Uh, no, no, I won't go that far. <laughs> um, no, I was with Company B of the Sixth Wisconsin Volunteer Infantry. All right. I've been, I've been a U.S. Marine off the Pacific Fleet in uh, in the Mexican War. I've been a uh, Krasna Armeik. I, I mispronounced that in the uh, 150th uh, Rifle Division of the uh, of the Soviet Army. I've uh, I've been a member of the French Foreign Legion. The 13th uh, uh, Demi Brigade of the French Foreign Legion, which had very high uh, Jewish participation, by the way. I, I remember when we first met, you showed me these pictures. Benny, I don't know if you're familiar with this or for our listeners. This is like hardcore stuff, like authentic everything. I think you even had tanks at one point, right? What? Well, if, if you recall <laughs> at the time, I, I showed these and I said, oh, but one thing, Dan, you can't tell anybody about this. Oh, no, I was making it up then. <laughs> <laughs> Intelligence yeah, no, analyst, my ass. <laughs> yeah, there, there are some guys, uh, you know, who, you know, actually maintain, you know, um, collections of armor. That's crazy. It's I, like I, you, could, you I, could source a tank and bring it to the war reenactment. I have looked at a Panzer III through the, the reticule of the sighting <laughs> device. I mean, you want to talk about having to, you want to talk about having to trust people. <laughs> I trust that you're not going to actually fire one off. Yeah. Uh, no, that's, that's awesome. I think that it's, uh, you could really deep dive into a whole bunch of stuff there. I, I, I think that if I was to be a war reenactor, I would probably do the the Revolutionary War. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that would be that would be. My, I, I love that period of history. I think that it's fascinating. Um, well, that, leave it that, at that. That's kind of why I do it, you know, because it's really hard to experience that that visceral feeling, and to really sort of. I'm fascinated by militaries as organizations, as organizations that are mission driven, that need to assess information, need to come up with courses of action, need to understand what's working and what isn't working. And it, it's, it's really surprising. I mean, you know, we, we do our little toy battles on these flat fields, you know, in the state of California and so on. But I personally have been, befuddled by by battle and have lost you know contact with the rest of the people in my unit and felt that confusion and felt what happens when there's a you know a sudden surprising move by the guys on the other side of the field and that that visceral feeling and that oh my god I should drop 
the the you know the the weapon and run and how do you fight that and and you know it's it's abs- you know and I don't mean in any way whatsoever to equate it with the real thing, but it does give you at least you know kind of a little taste. What's, it, it, what, what's interesting to me is being you know not not inducted into this at all. I mean, you're reenacting battles that have you know historical outcomes. So you, you, you're, you're aware of what happens to your side of that fight in that particular moment. But yet what you're describing is, you know, when you're in it and reenacting it, you're, you're fighting to win it or you're fighting to, you know, as, as you would if you were in that place in time. Do you have to fight the way, like, are there rules to it? Do you have to, does it have to end the way that it ended or can you? Well, there, there are two types of events. There are, you know, kind of public events you know, we are, I participated in what, the 150th anniversary of the, of the Battle of Antietam, you know, and there were, you know, 5,000, 6,000 reenactors. And yeah, it's, it's sort of, you know, when you're doing it in front of the spectators, it sort of needs to end the way it's supposed to end. <laughs> but the, you know, people who do it, generally, the, the, the thing that they like the most well, they like greeting the public and um, kind of informing them, you know, answering questions. And the second thing that they like the most is our, our tacticals, where the public is not invited. And mm. it's just, you know, a weekend of capture the flag. I mean, it's, that's it's silly, that's trivializing, but that's basically what it is. But, Are you in character the whole time? During the weekend, like for uh, example, would you would you go back to a beyond the battle? Would you go yeah, back yeah, to yeah. a camp yeah. that's in that era and eat the yeah, food yeah, yeah. that was of that era? And oh yeah, yeah, that that for sure. That's cool. You know that for sure. You know I've 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 frozen frozen my toes off doing a Russian front reenacting up in the higher mountains uh, in California. Do people get uh, pissed off if like they discover that their friend has a cell phone? He's talking in the tent to his wife, and it's like he's got he's got a few granola bars, and he's not eating, you know, the tin of beans and whatever. Got hand, he's got hand warmers. There are different groups at kind of different levels of of hardcoredness, but you know, yeah, you know, you need to go with the norms. Yeah, maybe you'll sleep in a sleeping bag, but it better be out of sight at all times. That's really Um, that's really funny. Are you familiar with the? sketch comedy uh show key and peel oh of course sure okay so they had a brilliant one about the civil war enactors and the they were uh, redoing the south in the civil war um and, and they had a slave and they had one of the guys as part of the role had to be very abusive towards this, and they were so uncomfortable <laughs> that they couldn't you know <laughs> and key and peel of course i forget which one um it might have actually been both of them were were you know, like waiting for it to happen. It was just such, you know, the brilliant awkwardness that they bring into into these kind of situations. Yeah, yeah. So, All right. Talking about Stephen, since you're, since you're from Minnesota, we'll wrap up with a Minnesota related question. Uh, as, as, and as someone from St. Louis Park and as a Jew, I'll ask, uh, as you are, uh, and I'm not, but uh, close enough. What is you your favorite? Uh, try. <laughs> what is, What is your favorite Coen Brothers movie? And did you go to high school with them? Um, I, were they in that class or were they a little bit younger? First off, I will relate something I was told on a third grade field trip to the Minnesota State Capitol in St. Paul, okay. which is that all great men, sick, that's the word that he used, all great men 
are either born in or eventually come to Minnesota. And it turns out that's true. <laughs> okay, um, let's see. Uh, no, the, the Cones went to my high school. Um, they were uh, a couple of years younger than me. So I didn't have contact with them. Tommy Friedman, um, not surprisingly, was the editor of our, uh, our newspaper, uh, both, both in, in uh, junior high and, and, and senior high. Um, um, uh, oh, what's his name? Former Senator. Um, oh, come on. You know, who had to step down because of. Um, Franken? Oh, yeah. Uh, Al Franken. Al Franken. He yeah, was feel. in my community, but he actually went to the, you know, the, the snooty private school um, in, mm-hmm. in St. Louis Park. Um, my favorite Cohen brother movie. I sure like Blood Simple when it came out. You know, I, I know the one you're thinking of, but that wasn't my favorite. Um, uh, well, it's really difficult to pick one. It's a difficult uh, thing to pick. What's yours? Mine is the Big Lebowski. The Big Lebowski. Yeah, that would have to be it. Yeah, that would have to be it. Yeah, you're right. That's that's classic. That's actually also their their L.A. movie. You know, each of their movies has like a different location that it's supposed to be based in, and they never repeat a location. So, Big Lebowski was their ode, was their uh, ode to Los Angeles. Well, the but there was particular. also uh, there was also Barton Fink, which took place in Hollywood. Wasn't Barton Fink? You're right. There is Barton Fink. You're I'm right. looking at the list now, and I'm realizing how many movies are Coen Brother movies that I don't didn't recall being Coen Brother movies. That's impressive. Maybe then, maybe Big Lebowski then was supposed to be like an ode to the San Fernando Valley. That would make sense. Yeah, that would make sense because it's very, it's very valley-ish. Awesome, Stephen. Thank you for taking this journey with us. I'm sorry if we, uh, if we went into uh, the weird alien place there, but uh... <laughs> well, we I'll get you'd... a lot less flack for that than the weird reenacting place. <laughs> <laughs> we we knew you'd go with the flow. Um, but we appreciate it. Uh, we appreciate you joining us on the show and My pleasure. Uh, look forward to seeing you hopefully again soon when you can travel back to Israel. Yeah, no, uh, um, in, from your mouth into God's ear. Um, let's, let's hope. And, and, may, and maybe more importantly, take care of yourself out there with those fires. You sent, you sent those pictures 800 meters away is like a little bit, I mean, yeah, it's a little for comfort. Comfort. turn your sprinkler system on. I saw that work for somebody. Yeah, oh, that, that's a good tip. I'll remember that. <laughs> thank you. I, I really appreciate it. And th- thank you so much for joining us on the show. We appreciate it. Had, had a great time talking to you and picking your uh, your very interesting and large brain. And, no, I don't uh, know about that, but you guys have a great show. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks, Stephen. And, uh, Take care. Hopefully we will see everybody uh, next time on Juanced. Take care. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.